The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 32, a Psalm of David, a contemplation. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. We're in Leviticus 26. We got this sermon and one more from Leviticus, and we're done with the book. So, pretty wonderful. We're in Leviticus 26, and we're going to be in verse uh, 40 through 46 today. Verse 40 says, But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they also have walked contrary to me, and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham I will remember. I will remember the land. The land also shall be left empty by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because they despised my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet, for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of the ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt and the sight of the nations, that I might be their God I am the Lord. These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. Somebody said to me that they were watching the screen over here with their new camera. He's, Sergio is panning around here. And he says, he panned over here where I'm reading. And Sergio asked me permission in advance, could he do that? And he said, I was sitting here and my hands are going like this. Well, down here... Well, I just wanted everybody to know that when you are watching me, if I'm not, I used to stand and preach until my back went out, right? But when I'm sitting here, my legs are always jumping around. When I sleep, my feet are always moving. And so Hedico can't sleep right next to me because I'm, I'm always moving. 
Yeah, I, 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 I'm just, I'm always moving, and I'm always moving stuff. So you have not seen what you have now seen, and this is all the time, always. So I just thought I'd let you know that. Anyway, today we're going to talk about, yeah, that's exactly right. I burned up all of my energy. Anyway, um, we're going to talk today about replacement theology. Okay, there are a couple of different camps in the Bible of people where they base their theology on as far as Israel as a nation is concerned. All right, we've got this term called dispensationalism, and that is what this church teaches. There are seven dispensations, which the doctor has a great, great uh, printout of that, and if you give that to me, I will take it down to Kinko's and I'll get copies. All right, well, either way, it, dispensations are the dispensation of innocence, where Adam is in the Garden of Eden, and then you have conscience, which is when man fell, and then you have the dispensation of government, which comes after the um, uh, flood of Noah, and then you have the dispensation of promise, which is to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then you have the dispensation of the law, that's the law of Moses, introduced at Mount Sinai. We're going to be talking about that and promise and a couple others during our sermon today. After the law, then we have the dispensation of, anybody? Grace. grace, thank you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The dispensation of grace. And then there's one final dispensation, which is that of millennium. That is where we believe that the Lord will sit on a throne, literally, in Jerusalem during a thousand-year period, which is recorded in uh, Revelation chapter 20. As a matter of fact, it doesn't say it one time in Revelation 20. It doesn't say it two times. It doesn't say it three, four, or five times. It says six times that there will be a thousand-year reign of Christ, okay? And that he will do it from Jerusalem and among his people... Israel, thank you. Okay, so that's what we as dispensationalists believe because that's what the Bible teaches. And then you have what's called replacement theology. Replacement theology says that the church is in, Israel is out, the Jews are done. Okay, that is incorrect. And we're going to see that in these verses today. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up right now is because when you debate a replacement theologian, you're naturally going to go to where it's taught, which is in Romans 9 through 11 and interspersed throughout the rest of Paul's writings, okay? And then you'll go to the book of Revelation, and you'll say, see, it says this. And they'll say, well, that is spiritual. And they will say that these promises now belong to the church. And so you've got this, this war going on between dispensationalists and replacement theologians, okay? I'll talk about that during the sermon. But I want you to understand that if you are going to go to those verses, you're going to be arguing against somebody that's looking at the exact same verses, and they're going to come to completely different conclusions because of their presuppositions and because of their training, okay? You go back to the Law of Moses, these six verses today, and you will see why their theology is incorrect, okay? There's no doubt about it. There's no way around it. But nobody ever goes here. So you will see today what is not seen by the rest of the world, which is arguing the same verses, just from a different presupposition. Now, I will say one more thing. Israel is Israel. The church is never, never called Israel in the New Testament, ever, okay? We are grafted into the spiritual commonwealth of Israel, but we are not Israel. When Paul speaks of Israel and then he speaks of the Gentile church, he's making a distinction. It's the same thing as when he says there is now no distinction between Jew and Gentile, male and female. All right, we talk about this during the Thursday Bible study. The very fact that he says Jew and Gentile means that there are still Jews and Gentiles. 
And the very fact that he says male and female means that we know that there are still males and females, unless you're in one of those churches which is LGBTQ, LMNOP friendly, all right? Everybody here that is a female can be identified as a female. You don't stop being a female when you come to Christ. The same is true with men. So Jew and Gentile, male and female, the distinctions do not change. Having said that, who is the Lord referring to in the six verses that I referred to today? Israel or the church? Israel. Obviously Israel. And yet the church at large, for the most part, denies that the people of Israel who are back in the land of Israel are entitled to the land that they now possess. Israel is out and the church has replaced them. This is the thinking. This is the standard thought of the Catholic Church, the Reformed Churches, and a host of other churches, sects, and cults in the world today. In fact, by acknowledging that Israel is entitled to the land, it means that their theology has been wrong for the past many, many centuries. And that's where the word P-R-I-D-E steps in. I'm not going to acknowledge that. In the early church, which consisted of only Jews, they expected the Messianic promises to be fulfilled in Christ and for them. In fact, it was the very last question proposed to Jesus by them before he ascended into heaven. In Acts, it was with awed surprise that Gentiles were to become a part of the church. At first, it was an exclusively Jewish entity, and it was observant Jews who filled its meeting places. The Samaritans, a mixed race of Jews and outsiders, were brought into the fold. That could be expected. At least they had a copy of the Pentateuch, even if it identified Samaria and not Jerusalem as their place of worship. That was easy enough to correct. Jesus had come, the plan was now obvious, and they could be brought into the fold with little difficulty. But Gentiles, they could never have imagined such a thing. Any Gentile would have to first become an observant Jew, right? But then came Acts chapter 10. Wrong. Gentiles received the same gift of the Spirit as did the Jews, without converting and without giving up any of their baconly delicious diets. They simply believed and received. It was so incredible to imagine that Acts chapter 11 finds the Jews accusing Peter of wrongdoing for going into a Gentile home to speak with them. But by the end of the passage, they exclaimed, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. If you notice, here and throughout the New Testament, even to the book of Revelation, the term Gentile is used. The difference remains, even if there is no distinction in Christ. A Gentile is no less a Gentile when coming to Christ than a woman is no less a woman when doing so. Positionally, we are all one in Christ, but as to nature, we remain Jew and Gentile, male and female. Our text verse comes from Acts chapter 1, it's verses 6 and 7. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. What was the very last thing that these men asked the Lord? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They had no idea at all that there was a church age coming. They had no idea that this church would include Gentiles and that eventually it would become a Gentile-led church. They had no idea because Jesus never spoke of such things. 
All they knew is that a new covenant had been initiated through his shed blood, and in the book of Jeremiah, that new covenant was to Israel and the house of Judah. To the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. If you don't believe me, go read Jeremiah 31, verse 31. They didn't even understand at this point that the old covenant, meaning the law of Moses, was actually annulled through this act. And what was Christ's response to these Jewish men? He didn't say, oh, you've misunderstood all of the promises through the prophets. There will be no kingdom age. There will be no return to the Davidic throne. There will be no literal fulfillment of any of those things. Rather, they are spiritually fulfilled in the church, which is led by Gentiles. No, Christ Jesus the Lord didn't say those things. He simply told them to get about the business of sharing the gospel, something which they did to their own people. It took divine intervention for them to go outside of their own people, Israel, and tell the Gentiles about Jesus. Philip was told by an angel of the Lord to speak to the Ethiopian eunuch. If he didn't do it, he wouldn't have gone. Peter was told in a vision to go to the house of Cornelius. If he wasn't told to do so, he wouldn't have gone. And Paul? Paul had to be first called out of what he did believe, and then he was instructed to go out to the Gentiles in particular in order to get things going. If he wasn't so called, it would not have happened. Not a single Jew anticipated anything that occurred. And how could they? It was all about them. This was true, but with an exceedingly long exile ahead, the Lord would not waste a moment of the precious time that man has been granted on this earth. And so during Israel's time of calamity, self-inflicted calamity, the Lord did something wonderful among the Gentiles. It is still ongoing today, but that time is drawing to a close. Leviticus 26 is given to us to understand this. And yet, we have, like Israel, failed to understand. The word is written. All we need to do is keep it in context, not mix dispensations, and simply pay attention to the world around us. If we do these things, we may still have some marvelous surprises, but the overall picture should not escape our attention. Israel. It is Israel who is being addressed, and it is Israel to whom the Lord will return to set up his millennial kingdom. This is a certain truth which is to be found in his superior word. And so, let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. <coughs> I have only two thoughts for you today. The first is the prayer of Daniel. It's verses 40 through 43. It's surprising that Bob brought up Daniel in our opening today. And he said, we should pray like Daniel. Guess what? Our first part is based solely on the prayer of Daniel. When 70 years for the punishment of Israel had been accomplished... Daniel prayed for the restoration of Israel. He knew that this was undeserved, but he also knew that the Lord had promised in advance that they would be returned to the land after 70 years. Daniel was just one man, but he prayed for the Lord to act, and he did so in accord with what is stated right here in Leviticus 26. Israel as a nation has not yet repeated Daniel's prayer, acknowledging their guilt and the rejection of Christ Jesus, but they will someday. For now, we will use Daniel's prayer to see the pattern of what the Lord promised here in Leviticus. I want you to follow what I'm saying. I'm going to read directly from Daniel's prayer, and then I'm going to read the next subsequent verse in Leviticus 26. And he uses Leviticus 26 as his basis for returning the words to the Lord. 
Daniel prayed, O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Verse 40, but if they confess their iniquity, see, Daniel just did that, and the iniquity of their fathers. There is no if in the Hebrew here. Some scholars, and obviously translators also, say that it is implied in the words, but it is not correct. The Hebrew reads, and they shall confess their iniquity. There is nothing conditional about this. The entire point of all of the horrifying curses which came upon Israel was to correct them. Until that occurred, and it would certainly occur, the punishments were given and would continue. However, the severity of the punishments would finally break stubborn rebellion Israel, and it would further lead them to confession. Although we are not yet at verse 44, the Lord says there that he would remain faithful to the covenant despite their rebellions, and he would not utterly destroy them in order to remain faithful to his word. As he would ensure they were not utterly destroyed, then it shows that those who were not destroyed would continue to suffer but not be utterly wiped out until they were completely broken with no one but the Lord himself to turn to. Again, we have to go back to the personal nature of the words in chapter 26 of Leviticus. I will, I will, I will. The words are in the first person, and it is the Lord who is speaking. The Lord would continue to doggedly pursue the living, even to the ends of the earth, not to destroy them, but to bring them back to himself. This is the entire intent and purpose of what is being relayed here. He began the chapter with commands intended to maintain the relationship between himself and Israel. He then immediately told what the blessings for adhering to these commands would be. It is a promise of care, concern, love, and affection. This is what I offer if you are faithful to me. And after that came assured curses. This is what you will bring on yourself if you are unfaithful to me. All of this will be self-inflicted, and all of it will cause you to confess your unfaithfulness. Let us step back and put ourselves into this picture for a moment. Verse 29 said that you shall eat the flesh of your sons and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. Would anyone here consider it evil that we would be forced to eat our own children in order to survive? Would you consider that evil? If we saw someone else eating their own daughter, would we call it evil? But the passage is in the first person. I will. Can we then ascribe this evil to the Lord? No. Israel brought these curses upon themselves. The Lord simply told them what would occur, and he followed through with his promises. But it is Israel, not the Lord, who has done the iniquity. That is why he begins with, And they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers. He includes the fathers here to indicate to them that this is an ongoing corporate punishment. Each Israelite is not a standalone unit who can separate himself and his actions from the corporate body. The same is true with man. We cannot say, I am separating myself from the sins of Adam. We are in Adam, and we are corporately guilty before the Lord. Without the Lord's intervention, we cannot become a new species and say, I do not bear Adam's guilt. Nor can Israel remain in Israel and say, I don't bear the guilt of my fathers. They are a corporate body. It is Israel who will confess the evil they face is because the evil they have wrought. 
It is they who have broken the covenant and they will be pursued until they confess what they have done. This is then made explicit with the next words, which are reflected in the words of Daniel 9, 7, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. Verse 40 continues with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me. Israel had committed a vone or iniquity, as the first clause noted. But who is the offended in their actions? The Lord now tells them that it is he. The Hebrew word ma'al used in this clause, translated as unfaithfulness, gives the sense of inflicting on the rights of another. Avon is a transgression against the divine law, and it is an act of unfaithfulness to the divine law giver. He takes their transgressions of his law as a personal offense. Daniel understood this when he said, We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his ways, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. That's Daniel 9.10. This repeats the Lord's words. Verse 40 continues, And that they also have walked contrary to me. They afashur halekhu imi bekeri, or, and also which they have walked to me contrary. This is in contrast to verse 3, where the Lord said, If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, they failed to do as stated. The people Israel are the offenders. The Lord is the offended. He acts to correct the offenses. There is no wrongdoing in the Lord. But such is the case with Israel, and such is the case with us today. We cannot impute wrongdoing to the Lord. We humans are the offenders, he is the offended, and he will act to correct the offenses. If it must be accomplished on a global scale against the sons of Adam, then that is his right. Man looks to find fault in God when calamity strikes. Oh God, why have you done this to me? But we as humans should rather pull out a mirror and look closely at those who are reflected in it. For Israel... Daniel understood this, and he said, Therefore the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us. That's Daniel 9.11. The Lord promised it would occur, verse 41, and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. These words are given in fulfillment of verses 27, 28, and 33 of chapter 26. Taken together, they would say, and after all of this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you in fury. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. The Lord said that he would do this, and now he is saying that it would occur, and yet even in this occasion, he would still be watching for the sure change in them. His punishments were intended to bring it about. They were not to destroy them completely. They were not to disband them as a people. They were not to merely show the church a lesson in Israel that was to be avoided by us. All of the years of punishment were intended to bring them to the day when there would be a change in them. It would be an internal change, meaning the restoration. Daniel led that prayer for his people with words, We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled. That's Daniel 9, 5. This is what the Lord's punishment was intended to accomplish. Verse 41 continues, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled. The change that the Lord had directed Israel to is a humbling of their uncircumcised hearts. The word kana, or to humble, is introduced here. It is the basis for the name Canaan, or the land of Canaan, where Israel dwells. 
What this implies then is two things. The first is that Israel was prideful in their hearts, and the second is that their hearts were not circumcised to the Lord. One leads naturally to the other. If one's heart is circumcised, they will not be prideful. This is reflected in Paul's words of Romans chapter 2. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Now the church will co-opt that verse, and they will say, see, we're circumcised in the heart, and therefore we are the true Jews. Paul, by the very nature of using the term Jew and Gentile, is once again making a distinction. That verse only applies to Jews. It does not apply to Gentiles. He is speaking of the Jewish people who are <coughs> circumcised in their hearts, who are the true Jews. And then he adds in a pun there. He says, whose praise is not from men, but from God. A Jew comes from the tribe of Judah. Judah means praise. He's saying that their praise, their Jewishness, is not from men by circumcision of the flesh. It is from God circumcising their heart. Does everybody understand that? It's very important to understand that that verse does not apply in any way, shape, or form to a Gentile. A true Jew is one whose heart is circumcised, meaning humble before the Lord and obedient to what he commands. This does not mean that a Gentile who is circumcised in the heart becomes a Jew. As I said, that is a category mistake made by replacement theologians. It means that only a Jew who is circumcised in the heart is a true Jew. We need to recognize this giant error in replacement theology. The Israelite looked at circumcision of their flesh as that which made them special. But here in Leviticus, they are given the first of such hints that this is not so. Circumcision of the heart is noted twice in Deuteronomy. It is noted in Jeremiah 4 verse 4 as well. Uncircumcision of the heart in Israel is mentioned in Jeremiah 9, Ezekiel 44, and Acts chapter 7. The theme is repeated often enough in scripture that it was commonly known among the people. The last instance, that in Acts, was spoken by Stephen to the leaders of Israel. Thus it is seen that Israel was without excuse. Circumcision of the flesh profits nothing. Circumcision of the heart must accompany it. That is what the punishment was intended to bring about. And that is what is effected in the people. And that in turn leads them to what Daniel knew was required. He thus prayed, O Lord, righteousness belongs to you but to us, shame of face. He had admitted the nation's guilt as the Lord expected. Verse 41 continues, and they accept their guilt. The word translated as accept here is ratzah. It is the same as enjoy in verse 43. And that is how it is more correctly translated. It is how the Greek translation of this passage actually translates it. It says, And then they will rejoice in the punishment of their sins. It is reflective of the words of Psalm 119, verse 71, where it says, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Although the concept doesn't translate well into our idea of rejoicing, what is being said is that the repentant Israelites will take it joyfully when they realize that the punishment that they have received is less than what they deserved. 
Daniel fully understood this, and he petitioned the Lord based on mercy, knowing that they deserved much more punishment than they had received. He said, for we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. In understanding these things, <coughs> Daniel departs from what will next be said in verse 42. Instead of directly appealing to the covenant which the Lord mentions, he appeals to the honor of the one who established the covenant by saying, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people who are called by your name. Instead of saying, you owe us because of the covenant you made with our fathers, Daniel appeals to the fact that his name is at stake, and that name is tied into both his city, meaning Jerusalem, and his people, meaning Israel. Understanding this, does anyone here think that this has somehow changed in today's world? Is the Lord's name any less at stake of being profaned now if he were not to defend Jerusalem and Israel? Of course not. Regardless of Israel's actions, the name of the Lord and his honor demand he uphold his covenant with them. Verse 42, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember. Pay heed, O replacement theologian. The Lord does not appeal to the Mosaic covenant here at all. The words of this verse are a part of the Mosaic covenant as it is being compiled. Instead, the Lord appeals to his promises to the patriarchs. And yet, it is in the Mosaic Covenant that the promise of remembrance of the covenant to the patriarchs is recorded. Let us think this through logically. Is the church under the Mosaic Covenant? No. Unless you're a heretic, no. But it is the Mosaic Covenant which is given to provide the blessings and the curses upon Israel. If the church is not under that covenant, then the blessings and curses are not directed to the church at all. And further, the appeal to the covenant with the fathers, which is recorded in the Mosaic Covenant, is not intended for the church. Though those in the church are sons of Abraham by faith, and I will not deny that because that's what we are, they are not included in what is stated here. The boxes are set and they are defined. Let us not mix up the boxes. Verse 42 continues, I will remember the land. The land, desolate during Israel's first and second exiles, forgotten by the world, neglected of any care, despised by the surrounding nations, but longed for by Israel and seemingly rejected by the Lord, is called to remembrance by him. It is as if he is awoken from a slumber, calling it to mind once again. Here the land is tied into the covenant with the patriarchs. The covenant with the patriarchs, including the land which is now being remembered, is included as a promise to Israel in the Mosaic Covenant. The church is not a part of the Mosaic Covenant. We just established that. The land is the Lord's and he has given it to Israel as an everlasting possession. The boxes are set and they are defined. Let us not mix up the boxes. Verse 43, the land also shall be left empty by them. Bible scholar John Gill, born 1697, 
and died 1771, long before the modern dispensationalist and Zionist movements began, said the following about this verse. This seems to refer to a, how many? Second time when this should be the case of the land of Judah again, as it was when subdued by the Romans and the Jews were carried captive from it. And so it was left by them as it has ever been since. And thus the land of Canaan, though once so very fruitful, is now desolate and barren, being without its former inhabitants. And so it is like to be until it is restored to them again. He said this eons ago. Oh, unbelieving world, even in antiquity, before it could have been dreamed possible, a man knew and understood. A man wrote what has been ridiculed and mocked by those who reject the surety of the covenants and the word of the Lord. Thank God for such a faithful soul and such a lone voice among his colleagues. Verse 43 continues. And will enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt. The same phrase as in verse 41 is given again, and they will rejoice in the punishment of their sins. The two ideas are not disconnected. The land would enjoy its Sabbaths, being readied for the people's return. Year by year, the land would enjoy rest and desolation, as if desiring the day that it would be productive once again. At the same time, the people would rejoice in knowing that they had been punished less than they deserved. Their return to the land would mean the land would again yield for their efforts. Both lead to the same good end, the productivity of the land of Israel at the hand of Israel. Sounds like the world that we live in today, doesn't it? Remember that video we watched a few weeks ago where they were harvesting grapes that they said could never be grown in this land just a few years ago? And now they are growing all types of grapes that are found in all climates of the world there in Israel once again. It is amazing, and it is prophesied right here in Leviticus chapter 26. Verse 43 continues, Because they despised my judgments, and because their soul abhorred my statutes. The words begin with ya'an ube ya'an. Because and even because, the stress tells us that the people were punished because they had despised the Lord's judgments and their souls had abhorred his statutes for which they were deserving of being completely cut off and yet the Lord was faithful to his word and he spared them this is what matters to the Lord right here thus they could rejoice in the punishment of their iniquity knowing that it was far less than deserved to think of what has occurred to Israel during the past 100 years or so with the pogroms and the Holocaust one might think that that is impossible, but in understanding that what they received is less than what they deserved, we can then begin to contemplate the absolute holiness of the Lord. And yet, in this passage, we can also see the great mercy of the Lord and the fidelity he has towards his word. We will see that after a short poetic break. <laughs> we have set our face before the Lord our God to make request by prayer for what we do not deserve. We have sinned in our walk that we have trod, and the Lord our God we have failed to serve. O oh Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us belongs only shame of face. We have acted wickedly in all that we do, and upon your glorious name we have brought disgrace. And so the curse and the oath has come upon us, but now we turn our hearts back to you. We call out for mercy through the Lord Jesus, and he will respond because he is faithful and true. 
Our second thought today is the faithfulness of the Lord. It's verses 44 through 46. Verse 44, Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them. The Lord speaks through his word, and his word becomes his signature of assurance. Does this passage speak of one exile, and then all hope is lost? Does this passage speak of accepting or rejecting Christ, who is their Lord, as justification for his breaking the covenant? Is not Christ Jesus, the Lord Jehovah, come in human flesh? And so, if Israel rejected Jesus, is that at all any different of theirs having rejected Jehovah in the past? Absolutely not. None of these things apply. The Lord made a covenant, and it must stand. Again, the appeal is to the patriarchs, and it is then noted in the Mosaic Covenant. It has nothing, zip, zero, nada, to do with the church age, except that we have been grafted into the promised salvation by faith, O faithless replacement theologians. Should I speak of dispensationalism without scholarly support? Have I not cited John Gill, who could never have fathomed, he could never have imagined what occurred in modern times concerning Israel? But should I leave him as a sole voice of lunacy? No, not at all. Of verse 44, Adam Clark, born in 1760 and died in 1832, still years before the modern dispensationalist and Zionist movements, says this. Though God has literally fulfilled all of his threatenings upon this people in dispossessing them of their land, destroying their polity, overturning their city, demolishing their temple, and scattering themselves over the face of the whole earth, yet he has, in his providence, strangely preserved them as a distinct people and in very considerable numbers also. He still remembers the covenant of their ancestors, and in his providence and grace, he has some very important design in their favor. All Israel shall yet be saved, and with the Gentiles, they shall all be restored to his favor, and under Christ Jesus, the great shepherd, become with them one grand everlasting fold. I went to Israel with Zola Levitt. Actually, I went with mom, and Zola Levitt happened to go along. He's dead now, but he was a Messianic Jew, and he had really good doctrine. He wasn't one of these that's off saying you need to do this and that. He understood that the feasts of the Lord were fulfilled in Christ, right? Things like that. I went with him, and he would speak to any church that would have him. He got a trailer on the back of his truck, and he'd drive around the U.S. when he was back in America. And any church that would have him, he would speak. And he said, I always ask the churches when I'm there, are there any Jews there or anybody with Jewish blood in their uh, veins here today? Go ahead and do it for me. Anybody with Jewish blood in their veins? How many? Raise your, raise your hands. I've got my hand up because I have it. We've got another one here. He said there's always 2 to 3% in the church. God preserved a righteous remnant, but the disbelieving Jews are covered under this right here. We need to remember that God is faithful to everything he says in his words. He says, I will preserve a righteous remnant. Here they are sitting in the church. Okay. But there is also the Jewish people, which he has promised to bring them back into his fold. And it's going to happen. While the land lay utterly desolate so that Mark Twain stood shocked at the curse which befell it. 
while the people of Israel were so scattered and diminished that the world almost entirely ignored them as anything other than a nuisance, and while the Lord seemed completely absorbed with blessing the church and cursing the few remaining and scattered Jews, the word of God remained the word of God, and it has stood while the faith of those who read it faltered. The disbelieving Christian spiritualized its content and neglected its intent. But the word remained nonetheless. And why should it be otherwise when the word bears the mark of a divine signatory? Verse 44 continues, For I am the Lord, their God. Ki ani Yehovah Elohehem. For I am Yehovah, their God. Who is speaking? Yehovah, the God of Israel. He is the covenant-keeping God. Their faithlessness does not in any way negate his faithfulness. His word is unconditional to the patriarchs, and it cannot be violated. His words of verse 44 are unconditional in what they proclaim. And yet, let us cast them to the wind. Let us spiritualize them. Let us reject the sure and everlasting promises of Jehovah because we are faithless replacement theologians. Let us accept the words of those who waffle in the sea of scripture. Instead, from the pulpit commentary of the 1800s, listen to what they say. It starts out really well. God's pardon will, even yet, as always, follow upon confession of sin and genuine repentance. We saw that with Daniel after the Babylonian exile. They must recognize not only that they have sinned, but their sufferings have been a punishment for those sins at God's hand. This will work in them humble acquiescence in God's doings. And then he will remember his covenant with Jacob and also his covenant with Isaac and also his covenant with Abraham. And for the sake of the covenant of their ancestors, he will not cast them away, neither will he abhor them to destroy them utterly and to break his covenant with them. So far, so good, right? Whether Jewish repentance has been or ever will be so full as to obtain this blessing cannot be decided now. Well, guess what? It was decided by John Gill, and it was decided by Adam Clark, but they're waffling. So here's what they say. Perhaps it may be the case that all the blessings promised by Moses and by future prophets to repentant and restored Israel are to find their accomplishment in the spiritual Israel. The children of Abraham, who is the father of all them that believe, seeing that God is able of stones to raise up children unto Abraham. How stupid. This commentary, which is somewhat reflective of replacement theology, with a minor caveat questioning if this could still apply to the Jews, mixes four, four dispensations in one. They started speaking about God's pardon based on repentance. That is speaking of the verses we are looking at now, the dispensation of the law. It then defers back to the dispensation of promise, which was given first to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob. In that dispensation of which we participate in the spiritual blessings was the land promise, a promise meant for Israel, not for the church. They then refer back to the law given to Israel, not the church, while mixing in the dispensation of grace by saying, perhaps it may be the case that all the blessings promised by Moses, that's this dispensation, and by future prophets to repentant and restored Israel are to find their accomplishment in the spiritual Israel, meaning the church. And speaking of the dispensation, guess what? Of the millennium at the same time. I'm running out of fingers here. 
The covenant promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is truly what the Lord is referring to. But adherence to or violation of the Mosaic covenant is what brought about the promises of blessings and the promises of punishment. These had nothing to do with the covenant spoken to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And more, they have nothing to do with the church. Are we under the law or are we under grace? We are under grace. And further, Paul says to those in Christ that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, get this, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. How can what is in Leviticus 26, which is of the law of Moses, be speaking to the church? The church is certainly looking forward to promised blessing, but are we also looking forward to assured curses? Is that what we're looking forward to? We aren't even imputed our trespasses. So how can we be assured of curses based on a violation of the law that we are not even under? Are we in Christ or are we not? The unthinking nature of the replacement theologian or those who are unsure about exactly what God means when he says, I will not break my covenant with them is almost unimaginable to contemplate. Verse 45, but for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors. The Lord's words in this passage are spoken as an accomplished fact. Everything is present in the Lord's mind from what was to what will be. It is as if we are looking at a train, leaving a station, arriving at another station and everything in between all at the same moment. This verse here, guess what folks, is not speaking of the covenant referred to in verse 42. It is speaking of the covenant that is now being given and which will continue to be given and built upon through Deuteronomy. Therefore, the covenant of their ancestors in this verse is speaking of the Mosaic covenant. And it is about a people far in the future to Leviticus 26. But looking back to this time, he will execute to them the words of this covenant, which was made to their ancestors, meaning that which is being executed with Israel via Moses and those with him. This is certain because of the next words. Verse 45 continues, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations. Doesn't apply to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. Guess who he brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations? It is Israel, now in the wilderness and now receiving the words of the covenant, who was brought out of the land of Egypt. The Lord has appealed to the covenant to the patriarchs, but he has solidified his word and thus his actions towards that covenant by bringing them out of Egypt and initiating this covenant. He had promised to give the land in which the patriarchs dwelt to their descendants. He is now confirming that, and he is stipulating everything associated with that covenant in this covenant. And there is a specific reason for doing this. It is, verse 45 continues, that I might be their God. This was explicitly stated in Exodus 6, verse 7, prior to the Exodus. It says there, I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The Lord did bring them out. And then the Lord offered to them the covenant which he is now speaking of. They agreed to its precepts and thus he is their God. The deal is done. And who is their God? He tells us, meaning all of the people of the world, including by, by the way, replacement theologians. <laughs> Verse 45 continues, I am the Lord. 
Ani Yehovah, I am Yehovah. Yehovah is their God. Does this change with Jesus' incarnation? Is he any less God or any less Israel's God? Not at all. Nothing has changed between Israel and the Lord. They remain under his authority to be punished or to receive mercy and blessing according to their acceptance of his statutes and his judgments. And those statutes and judgments include heeding the one that he will send to fulfill this covenant and initiate a new one. They have seven years left to them under this covenant in order to accept Christ and to be restored to God through him. This was confirmed to them through the words of Daniel 9, verse 24. The covenant is fulfilled and it is annulled in Christ, but they have not yet received Christ. Thus, the covenant is binding on them as a people until they come to Christ. And when they do, guess what's going to happen? Let me read you something right from the Bible. I'm going to take you to the book of Matthew. I'm going to take you to the book of Matthew chapter 23. And I'm going to take you to Matthew 23, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more Till you say, Baruch haba Bashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus Christ is not coming back to this planet until Israel accepts Jesus. He's coming for us at the rapture and we're going to meet him up there. We're not meeting him down here. That is his own words. Now, people will say, well, he says after that at Palm Sunday that the people said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Guess what? Matthew is not chronological. Mark is, and he specifically places this after it in Mark. So if you're a replacement theologian, do not send me your email about that. You've got it wrong, okay? <laughs> Jesus is coming back to Israel when they call on Jesus as Lord, and that's what's going to happen. Verse 46 finishes up our verses today. I'm angry. I'm so angry at what's happened in the world of the church, how we have rejected what God has so clearly said in his word. If John Gill and Adam Clark can see this in the word hundreds and hundreds of years ago, long before anybody ever thought that Israel would be back in the land, then it is we who are to blame and we that should be chastised for rejecting what God has said. But as I said, blindness in part has come to Israel, right? Well, guess what? That means blindness in part had come upon the church because when you look through a dark mirror, one way or the other, there's a blindness. If the church knew that it was up to them for Christ to return, what do you think the church would be doing? The church would be evangelizing every Jew on this planet, but they didn't. They just let them go do their own thing. They're out, we're in, and they spiritualized everything. We need to hold fast to the word of God. Verse 46 says, these are the statutes and the judgments and the laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. This verse looks back immediately to verse 26, 3 which appealed to the people to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments. But it goes back further to verse 25, 1, which said that the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. As I said then, it actually reads Behar Sinai, literally in Mount Sinai, but meaning in the region of Sinai. Because the term Sinai has been used, the entire passage has anticipated the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Sinai means bush of the thorn. The name of the location is given in connection with the redemptive workings of God in Christ, which look forward to the cross. In other words, the laws have been given, the promised blessings and curses have been identified, and the promises of restoration have been named. Israel failed and was exiled twice. But God did not neglect his other promises in the meantime. Throughout the Old Testament, the promise of a Messiah is given. When he came, he fulfilled what Israel had failed at. And in his fulfillment, he offered them a chance to be included in the new covenant. They rejected that as he knew they would. And they went into punishment seven times over for their sins with the promise of seven more years of the old covenant in order to come to Christ. Israel is now again in the land being prepared for that to occur. Those seven years will be a time of great trial and tribulation, but they will end with the Lord Jesus returning to them, rescuing them, and setting up the millennial kingdom among them. It is what they had anticipated in Acts chapter 1, and it is what is promised in Revelation chapter 20, but which is described in detail among the prophets of old. While still under the old covenant, they foresaw the glory which lay ahead in the new. Israel has been on a journey which has taken thousands of years to come to its fulfillment. But God, who is ever faithful to his word, is bringing them, his people Israel, back to himself slowly but surely. And despite their continued rejection of him. This is the Lord who is ever faithful and who is ever true. While he is working towards mending that bridge, he has been tenderly caring for the Gentiles of the world. Israel failed to see the glory of what occurred at the cross of Calvary, but they are starting to see it now. Each day, more and more Jews are realizing what they had missed. Together, Jew and Gentile are offered the same marvelous grace of God. It is that which says, come to me and your sins will be forgiven. I will no more remember them and I will cast them further than they could ever be brought back to mind. Each step of what God has done has been for us to see and to realize our desperate need for God's grace and his mercy. That is the purpose of the cross. Jesus has done the work and Jesus has paid the penalty. All we need to do is receive that and all will be well between us and God. And so I will give the petition as I do each week that if you have never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are not on your way to heaven. I'm sorry. There is no balances in the scale. There is no bell curve on which God judges. He judges by one standard and by one standard alone. And that is the perfect fulfillment of the law of Moses that we've been looking at. It must be fulfilled perfectly by every person. And if it is not, then you will be rejected. But God, in the law of Moses, offers something called substitution. I will allow punishment to be executed here and righteousness to be granted here. So the people would go down to the tabernacle or the temple and they would take an innocent animal and they would confess their sins over it. And then the animal would lose its life and the Lord would say, I'm accepting this in your place. But the book of Hebrews says that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. They all, as we saw throughout this entire book of Leviticus, pictured Jesus Christ. Every word pictured him in one way or another. The type of fat used, the type of animal used, every single word has pointed to Jesus Christ. We have had tens of thousands of pictures of him because it is all about him. And without him, we will not be saved. 
And because there is substitution allowed in the law, and he is the fulfillment of the law, and he gave his life in fulfillment of the law, then he, God himself, allows us to accept that substitution in Christ Jesus. And so we fully merit salvation because of his completion of the law of Moses. It is fulfilled in us. And that's why it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that now God is not imputing sin to us. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. You have a choice. Stand under the law. The man who does these things shall live by them. You can't do them and you won't live by them and you will be condemned. Or come to Jesus Christ, accept the substitution of the perfect, sinless Lamb of God and be saved. Please do it today. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time of God's favor. Please call on Jesus Christ. I've got a closing verse for you from Romans chapter 9. 9 through 11, that's the Israel verses. Go brush up now that you know replacement theology is wrong, okay? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Once again, he is speaking about Jacob. He's speaking about Israel. The church is not Israel. He never says that. It never says it. The closest you could come to that is Galatians chapter 6, where it speaks of the Israel of God. Let me read this to you, and then I'll show you where replacement theologians are wrong on that as well. This is like a second closing verse, okay? Take you to Galatians chapter 6. And it says there, give me just a second. It says here, let me see if I can find it really quickly. It's got to be right at the end here. Before I speak, oh, I'm in Ephesians. You've got to be in the right book there, Charlie. Always helps to be in the right book. It says here, and as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Guess what? He's not speaking about the church being the Israel of God. He's saying, speaking to who? The Galatians. Are they Jews? No, they're a Gentile church. And he says, to everybody that's going to follow in this pattern and to the Israel of God, meaning the Jews who had accepted Yeshua as their Messiah. It's a category mistake, lumping Gentiles in with Jews and coming to faulty conclusions. Next week, Leviticus 27, 1 through 34. This will be the last sermon in Leviticus. I hope you have so noted. It's entitled, Things Vowed and Things Devoted. That'll be our 51st and final Leviticus sermon. I'm probably going to cry. Please forgive me in advance. I've enjoyed it so much. This has been the most marvelous trek through a book I, I could not have imagined. And I loved this book more than any book in the Old Testament when we started it. Remember, I started by saying that. The college professor said to me, pick any book you want. This is to all the class. Pick any book you want and do your study on it. And everybody picked really big books like Jonah and Obadiah, right? And I, I told him I wanted to do Leviticus and he fell right out of the chair and had a heart attack. We had to call in the EMT. He said, what? I said, it's the most wonderful Christological book in the world. And it, it was nothing compared to what I saw when I started doing these sermons and what you have heard. It is the most wonderful book. I'll tell you this, a final point for today as I give you each week because I've given you 4,000 points and you're not going to remember any unless I give you one. <laughs> Replacement theology is a terrible theology of convoluted doctrine. Okay, that's your final point. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. 
even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and he can purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him and he'll do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Short poem and we're done. I will remember the covenant. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers who acted unfaithfully with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me and that they have also to me walked contrary and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into their enemy's land. If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt when they understand, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac by my raised hand and my covenant with Abraham I will remember I will remember the land. The land also shall be left empty by them, and they will enjoy its Sabbath while it lies without them desolate. They will accept their guilt because they despised my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes, which they did forget. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I them abhor to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God, yes, even forevermore. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors, their early family relations, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. So stands my word. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between himself, as we now understand, and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by Moses' hand. Lord God, we all, like Israel, have gone astray, and as a vile cloth we should be cast out, but in Christ you have granted us a new way, and in Christ there is peace and surety, not strife and doubt. Thank you for bringing us back to yourself through Jesus. Thank you that there is reconciliation, complete and whole. We praise you for all that you have done for us. All is well with the redeemed soul. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much that you are a covenant-keeping, faithful God. And in seeing your faithfulness to Israel, we know that the rest of your word is true, we can absolutely be assured that your word to us, that we will be with you forever, is true. Let us not have doubts in our hearts. Let us not have worries in our minds that we could have somehow lost our salvation with you, but that we are saved eternally despite ourselves. We believed and we received the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Erevon, which is given to us as a guarantee what kind of a guarantee would it be if we could fail you and have it taken away? But no, sin is not being imputed and the wages of sin is death. You've made it possible for us to be reconciled to you once and forever. Thank you for the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And in his precious and beautiful name we pray, amen. amen.